Okay, good morning, good afternoon. Um, if you'd like to find the letter of 1 Timothy in your Bible, then you can go for it. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine, you can look at the screen and the, the scripture references will come there. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at a few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, this afternoon, and, uh, which I'll read in just a moment. Just a few verses from 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. So I think the blue buckets are done. Here we go. So Paul, writing to Timothy, puts it this way. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Those are the verses that we're going to look at uh, this afternoon. And these verses are the very heart of the whole letter. Everything else in the letter flows from these verses one way or another. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, a particular book in the Bible, you have to play detective, try and work out why did the human author think it was so important to write this stuff? What was the purpose of this particular book? What was the purpose of this particular letter? Sometimes you have to play detective, and as you read through the book, you're like picking up clues as you go. Sometimes they just tell you, and here it is. This is why he's writing. Um, or, you know, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, praise the sovereign Lord that Paul was delayed. Praise God that he thought he might be delayed because we get this as a result. Isn't that I mean, It's like glorious understatement as well, isn't it? You think, I don't, it's like the queue at the checkout is busy today or I'm expecting lots of traffic. This could be I'm expecting to be delayed because amazing opportunities are, gonna, are opening up where I am at the moment. I can't possibly leave right now. Could be that. It could be uh, I'm in the midst of persecution. I'm busy at the moment. It could be uh, I'm imprisoned. I don't, I don't know if Paul ever got back to Ephesus. I'm not sure. That'd be one to study up on. Did he ever make it ever again to Ephesus at this point? Or by delay, does he mean imprisonment and death? I mean, obviously, he got to write another letter to Timothy. We, we kind of don't do understatement nowadays, do we? If something's slightly good, it's awesome. If something's a little bit troubling, it's horrific. And Paul writes in this understated way, if I'm delayed, wow. Um, we, we get this letter because that's what he was expecting. I don't know what it sounds like to you, whether it just sounds a bit kind of, ooh, a bit odd, a bit, uh, a bit religious. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves. Sounds a bit serious and, uh, and worthy. Actually, this is the heart of the letter. This is the this is the drumbeat. This is the rhythm that he's walking to. And this shows us why 
this letter is so important and it shows us why the church matters so much. Because you remember, right at the beginning, it says, Paul writes, Timothy, stay put. Don't go anywhere else. So you could kind of imagine Timothy saying, oh, do I have to? It's getting hard work here, Lord. I'd like to move on to something else more exciting. He said, no, don't move on from the church. There isn't anything more exciting on the planet. Um, He's saying, he's saying, look, something matters massively about the church, and it matters that the church in Ephesus, how she is, what she's doing, what she's like, that the church matches the gospel that she believes, that the church believes. In other words, the people, the community of God, totally match the message, the gospel. I don't know um, if you have, like us at home, a games cupboard. We have a games cupboard, and one of our games is a memory match. You may also know it by the name Pears. It is not highly sophisticated, but it's quite fun. Um, so I like playing pairs, and in the game of pairs, there are a few cards, and there's a perfect match. So you can see there, I have not one, not one, but two lions. So if you picked those up on your go, you have got a pair, and you're closer to winning. And there are, there are other ones that clearly don't match. So you couldn't claim, for example, that that lion... matches with this fox. You would just need to put them back and have another go. Sometimes there's like quite a close, it almost looks like it matches, but it doesn't quite. So here, just at first glance, you might think they're the same. Woo! Yeah, I've got a match. Well, actually, no, you haven't. Look more closely and you see one is a panda. One is a panda. And I'm not sure what this other one is. Uh, the other one is a raccoon. So at first glance, you think bingo, but then you look more closely and realize, no, it's not, it's not a match. And the church is not called to match the gospel in that. Oh, nearly, kind of, almost. We're called, oh, hang on a minute. Let's go back to the lions. They were simple. The church community is supposed to be a proper match with the gospel. That the gospel has so affected us as a people that when the, when the world sees the church, they go, oh right, I get it. It's real, it's authentic, it's genuine. It, it kind of matches with the truth that it's proclaiming. Otherwise, sometimes Paul comes along and he sees a church, and he goes, hang on, that doesn't quite match. That's close but no cigar, or that really isn't close. Guys, come on. In other words, there's something really, really important uh, at stake. Paul can say of himself, my life didn't used to match the gospel. So chapter one, he says, I was, uh, I was blaspheming, I was persecuting, I was violent, and I was unbelieving. That's the life I used to lead. And that's what I've been rescued from. And he's, he doesn't, that, that's not 
that's not what his life is like anymore. His life matches the, gosp- matches the gospel. So you're reading through a letter and you see all the ways in which it does in terms of worship and in terms of humility. And in terms of the fact that, well, he's laying his life down for the church. Not just paying lip service to things. He's saying to Timothy, come on, fight the good fight. Not that fight that I used to fight. Fight the good fight for God's purposes on planet Earth. He, write, he wrote to the Ephesians before um, and said in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, let me find it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This would be his, his message to the church. He'll tell them all about the gospel. And then in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Go on, match. Look at the gospel. That's what you've received. Now I urge you, live a life that's worthy of it. Live a life that matches it. Live a life that only makes sense in the light of it. Live a life that can't be explained any other way than God has changed you with the gospel. That's not just a game. But real life. So as we, let's bear that in mind as we go through this, these few verses and look at, in particular, answering this question, what on earth is the church? What is the church? Why is she so special? Why is the church unique? And then how do we match with what we're called to be as a community? Firstly, what is the church? Well, neatly, Paul tells us three things. The church is God's household. God's household. Now, not talking about bricks and mortar. We're not talking about a 1930s semi or Victorian terrace. We're we're not talking about a structure. We're talking about people. God's household is like saying God's family. And this is a unique family because it has a heavenly father. And... uh, when John begins his gospel, telling the good news that's in Jesus, he, he says this in John chapter 1, uh, verse 12, speaking about Jesus, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now some people can look back over their human life and their earthly upbringing and just give thanks. I'm thank, thank you so much, God for the family that you knitted me into. So grateful for the privilege of it and what I've known as a result of it. And some people look back at their family upbringing and their human descent and go, oh goodness, God, did it have to happen like that? That's a bit ugly, really. But for all of us, regardless of experience, regardless of upbringing, regardless of our backgrounds, this is the wonder of it all. Yet to all who received him, to all who believe in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, regardless. Regardless of which side of the tracks we grew up on, regardless of of, of whether it's nice and rosy or a bit ugly. But now, through Jesus, I belong to God's family. And I have a heavenly Father. We are all His children. No ifs, no buts. Everyone who's received Jesus has a heavenly father in God. That being the case, we also have a wonderful brother. And we've been reading about this when we've looked at uh, Hebrews with, uh, with Richard's help 
in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, the writer there says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Have you ever been embarrassed by your family? Dangerous question, isn't it? Have you ever been embarrassed by a brother or sister? Or just slightly wishing you weren't there at that time with, with mum and dad? It's like, yeah, you can kiss me on the cheek at home, but don't do it now at the school gate or whatever. Uh, for us, as a family, um, uh, we, we experience that moment of awkward embarrassment at a very particular point. It's when mum stepped towards and then inside a charity shop. It's like, mum, we love you, but please don't go there. I don't know why. I guess we just felt awkward about charity shops. It's just like, we don't know her at that point. Just didn't want to be seen, didn't want to be there. Do you know, Jesus never has that moment with us. And that is quite profound. Why? He is holy. We are being made holy, and yet that work is far from complete just now. But even before we have been made holy, Jesus is never awkwardly embarrassed to say, she's with me. He's with me. I'm her brother. I'm right with her. I'm not ashamed. I'm not going anywhere. Um, doesn't mean that Jesus approves of absolutely everything. I don't know what his thoughts are on charity shops, but that's just the illustration. It's Jesus is never ashamed. If you're in Christ, if you've believed in him, if you've received him, you've got a heavenly father and you have a wonderful brother who will always be delighted to identify with you. And we're told even there that he is singing praise to God about us. He is singing about you. We're singing about him, but he's singing about you. It's a wonderful family to be a part of. There's no other family like it. And this is what we're called to be. God's, God's household. God's family. And what Paul explained in his first letter to the Ephesians is that the gospel is so awesome, it brings people together who, in kind of earthly terms, wouldn't really belong. Wouldn't really identify with each other. Maybe even there would be hostility and suspicion and more than awkwardness. But you can say in Ephesians chapter 2, yeah, you, you used to be separated in the world, Jew over here, Gentile over there. Never together. Never mixing. Never, never. Separate, separated. And that's what happens on the, in the world. A, a separation takes place. Oh, we're different. We're not like them. We've got, we, we've got something in common, but they're so different. How could we possibly be together? No, God in the gospel was, did the most profound thing, demolished the, the kind of dividing wall between Jew over there and Gentile over there and said, I'm going to make one new man in Christ, that there might be peace. There's peace with God, and now there's peace with each other. And he does that uh, for 
us, so that what once separated people is now overcome by that which brings them uh, together. And so whenever Paul encountered a church and he thought that that truth wasn't represented in how they were, he took action. Now maybe sometimes it was because it was a really, really blatant difference. So something's blatantly wrong. And he goes into, he hears about what's happening in Corinth and he says, guys, your meetings do more harm than good. Because when you get together, uh, the rich get drunk and the poor go without. That is outrageous. Church life should not be so structured that it always preferences those who have got money and makes life difficult for those who don't. Something has to change. It's always easy for us in, in the world and in the church just to say, well, it's inevitable, isn't it? We are always a bit different. Can't please everyone. So, like, as though no effort should be made. That's not on. That's got to change. Your, your meetings are death. And Jesus is not putting his name to them. So, that's got to go. And maybe sometimes it's quite subtle. Let's try and find a subtle pair again. Okay. There's another occasion where, where Paul has noticed what Peter's doing. Now, Peter believes that Jew and Gentile alike are justified by faith. But on one occasion, you can see that Peter's just started to distance himself from the Gentile believers, and is mainly just hanging out with the Jewish believers. Probably because he's a bit worried about what other people will think. And again, Paul comes and speaks to Peter and says, might almost look okay, but it's so not okay. That doesn't, that's not in line with the gospel, Peter. You know the gospel, you believe the gospel, so come on. Don't, don't, don't allow that separating out to happen again. You're one, you're together, we're celebrating the gospel and we're living in the light of it. And sometimes that means that those who are kind of in a stronger position need to make that deliberate choice. Church life doesn't have to please me. It doesn't have to be kind of all matched to my preferences and desires. I, wanna, I want church life to be such that it's more comfortable for others. But we're preferring one another's needs. Actually, family only really works that way. If you get a family where people aren't preferring one another's needs, it's back to hostility. People start separating out. It gets really tricky. Family only really works if we're preferring one another's needs. Not just thinking, my, my needs aren't being met. It's it, working together in, and, and preferring uh, one another. What would your response be if I told you this morning that we were going to change the name of the church? We're not about to, but for, make, for the sake of making, making the point, what would you think if we said, from now on, for today onwards, we're going to be Sheffield Family Church? Sometimes we can just think of it in earthly terms. Think, oh, that's great. Well, I've got a family. We're all together. And life, you know, that's gone really well for us. So I can really imagine myself being part of Sheffield Family Church as though it's just about preferring people with families. And other people just think, well, my family is a real mess. Some are saved, some aren't. Or we're, we're even estranged. We don't see each other anymore. I got divorced. Sheffield Family Church. I'll probably find somewhere else, actually. Well, that would just be by thinking in terms of, in, in earthly terms. And we're being lifted from that to say, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about everybody who's received Christ and believed in his name is part of God's family. And now all sorts of people gather together to honor Jesus 
and love one another. Forgiving one another, bearing with one another, preferring one another's needs, and so on. That's the way we're to think of being the family of God. Sometimes we can just think of it in, in, in human terms and think, well, it's inevitable, isn't it? People have had different experiences, different backgrounds, different ethnicity, different culture. It's under, it's, of course, birds of a feather flock together. We just want to hang out with people who are like us. We want to hang out with people who are at the same stage of life as us. It's just natural, isn't it? Well, yeah, according to our human nature, it might be. But that doesn't trump the Word of God. We think, no, there's something spiritual and supernatural that kind of sets that aside. No, no, the church is different. The church is a unique community of people who aren't just doing what's normal from a conventional worldly point of view. Uh, we're not called just to associate with people who are a bit like us. We're called to, to be together as a family, united, honouring the Saviour who's brought us together and therefore honouring one another in all sorts of different ways. That's what it is to be God's household. We want to match with that? Or do we just think, oh, well, that's what they say, but actually this is what happens. We kind of organize ourselves into a variety of cliques. After a while, you begin to discern and pick up. Ah, let's, let's not settle for that. Let's settle for what it means to be God's household, God's family. Paul also describes us, or describes the church, as not just God's household or God's family, but the church of the living God. So if I told you we're going to change our name from today onwards and say we are going to now be known as the church of the living God, would that excite you? Would that make you think, oh no, are we going to get a little bit more wacky? Is, this going to, is it all going to be like flags and streamers? I'm not sure I can handle that. Um, what, do we, what does this mean? What was Paul getting at? Well, God's people always had uh, a profound knowledge of the presence of God. Or it was, it was in their story all the way through. There are lots of places where we can see how God showed up. God's presence came. This unique community was where God had chosen to dwell. And we could turn to lots of examples. We'll just turn to one of them in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the point where God's people are in their promised land at a time of, uh, of relative peace as Solomon has come to the throne and he uh, starts to see the temple in Jerusalem being built for God. Builds it and then in, in 1 Kings chapter 8 it's dedicated and we can just read something that happens in the course of, of all the different events that were happening that day in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 10. It says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I've indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Can you imagine what was going on that day? Can you imagine the sense of just wonder? stood before or even inside the temple that now is complete. 
Uh, who knows all the different things they had planned by virtue of in terms of dedicating it to the Lord? I guess you can read the rest of the chapter. And there comes a point where the priests realize, can't do anything now. Because God's just come. And there's this cloud of glory in the temple. What wonder. What were they expecting to happen? But I think their expectation is, well, we do follow the living God. And we were building this to be his house. So perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that he's just shown up. And here he is. You know, because we follow the living God, the one and only living God. See, they had that sense. They, they weren't just kind of creating some idle wooden carving they decided to bow down to. I guess they did that at one point, didn't they? Made a golden calf until Moses comes that, back down the mountain and just makes it into dust. What are you playing at? We don't worship some fabricated idol. We worship the living God. Well, that's what they realized in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. Here he is. The cloud of God's glory in the temple. And because we worship a God who is alive, surprising and wonderful, awe-inspiring things can happen. Jesus came. The, the dwelling place of God came to planet Earth. And it says in John chapter 2, at a certain point where Jesus revealed his glory... And it says his disciples put their trust in him. Do you know how Jesus revealed his glory on that occasion? How would you, if you were deciding, I'm going to follow this man Jesus, I think he might be the Messiah. What do you think he might do to reveal his glory? Well, the disciples saw one day, they were at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and at the wedding they were running out of wine. And that was bad news. It wasn't this was not going to be a good party. There's going to be a huge loss of face, an embarrassment that would be known for generations. The wedding where they ran out of wine. Everybody uh, would remember what sort of party can you have without wine when the only alternative would be water? What sort of party can take place with just water? This, is, this was a massive social uh, crisis but Jesus revealed his glory. What did he do? He said to the servants, fill up those six jars, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones which contain a hundred liters or thereabouts, fill them all up with water. Right? We've got 600 liters of water. Okay, servants, take out kind of a, a cupful and take it to the master of the ceremonies. It's still water. Bring it to the master of ceremonies, who then takes a sip and thinks, wow, you've totally broken convention. This is the best wine. Why on earth have you saved it until now? Most people use the best wine first and then uh, bring out a few liters of yuck when people have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best stuff till now. That's amazing. Not everybody at the wedding knew that's what happened, but the disciples knew. Wow, here's the man we're following steps into a crisis and reveals his glory by, as it were, in our terms, going to the bar and saying, uh, a thousand pints, please, on me. Who is this man? God revealing his glory. I'm going to put my trust 
in him. Surprising things can happen because God is at work and God is alive. Maybe you read that passage and you're, you're no longer surprised by it. I think it's tremendously surprising. God shows up at a wedding, turns water into wine, and then the next verses, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he turns tables over, makes a whip and, and scatters the money of the money changers because he sees all the corruption in the temple. I'm surprised by that. But when God shows up, surprising things can happen. And when the, uh, in the earliest days of the church, surprising things can happen. I don't look around the room right now. Have a guess. How many people are in this meeting? I think we might be slightly under 120. But kind of just imagine that a couple extra chairs are filled and we'd probably have 120 people in this room. There was a time on planet Earth when that was the church. The church was 120 people gathered together praying in an upper room in Jerusalem. Now maybe scattered throughout other parts of Palestine, there were other believers who if like if pushed, would, have, would say, actually, yeah, I believe in him too. But in terms of like church community, this is it. 120 people gathered together uh, to pray. What accounts for the church today? It started with just 120 believers, 120 disciples. Is it, was it, just clever programming and kind of church logos was it just kind of like tapping in to aspirations and working out how was it just a human inspired skill that saw the church develop or was it just 120 people saying oh my goodness what on earth is going to happen you've told us to wait here until you give us the holy spirit so we're going to pray you think, well what were their what were their expectations on the day of pentecost just another prayer meeting, it could have been. We don't know if they were expecting anything unusual to break out that day. Uh, and we don't know what they thought exactly would happen when they were clothed with power from on high. But then we read in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 what, that, what happened when they were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. That kind of interrupted their plans for the day. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Here is the church of the living God exploding out of the doors into life in Jerusalem. A dwelling place of the living God. That's what the church is. That's what so excited uh, so excited Paul that again when he wrote to the Ephesians previously he could say in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 look you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household as we've just seen built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his 
Spirit. So, so therefore, to say the church is the church of the living God is not saying something quirky or wacky or crazy or weird. It's, it's saying something wonderful. Does, do your expectations match with that? doesn't mean that every single moment spent as a Christian is like one surprise after another. Every meeting, like, crazily different from before. But it means we have an expectation one way or another we are meeting with the living God. In a whole variety of ways, amongst God's people, it will become apparent He's real. He's alive. You don't mess with the living God. So it brings a sense of awe, working out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. This is not just a human activity. This is the presence of God. Now we can just think of it in human terms. Somebody shares something from the microphone, it's a bit prophetic. Someone else speaks out a bit of a babble, and then we get an interpretation. We can just think, well, they're just doing what they feel to do in the moment. Something's come to mind, so they're sharing it. Um, or a sense of, wait a minute, God's at work. That's what happened, actually, in Ephesus itself. What happens, again, is Paul arrived in Ephesus met a real small group of people that he could assume were disciples of Jesus. And he's, Hang on a minute, something's not quite right here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Right, okay, let me just take you a few steps further back. You actually need to hear more about Jesus, get baptized in water, and now I'm going to lay my hands on you, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they receive the Holy Spirit. What's the evidence then of God's presence among this people? It says they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. It's the evidence of God. And God, uh, in his word, speaks to us about prophecy. He says, well, if somebody, an unbeliever, comes in amongst you and they hear, hear you prophesying, there'll be this awareness, God's really among you. The secrets of my heart have just been laid bare because I heard somebody's prophesying. What else were the, what, what was the other evidence of God being amongst his people? It says in, uh, in the same time, uh, Paul did, through God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Excuse me, sorry. Extraordinary miracles. What are ordinary miracles? One might kind of think. Extraordinary miracles were happening. Uh, that included people being healed. That included people getting set free from uh, demonic spirits. Oh, we don't believe in that anymore. Well, we read the word, we see that. No. The Spirit of God and the truth of God makes a real difference in our lives. Is that part of our framework, or are we just thinking about church being a human activity, the thing that we do, the meeting that we go to, the things that tend to happen, or an awareness that God is amongst us? Anything could happen. Believing for people to get free from evil spirits. And the evidence of that was that people uh, then realized, oh, this, these books I've got, this literature, this stuff that's to do with sorcery, I need to get rid of it. I'm not going to take that to charity shop. It's not like I want other people to have it. So what are people doing? Like burning, publicly confessing their sin and burning the stuff they used to live their life by. Wow, total and utter, wonderful, life-transforming events happening. Why? Because Paul rocked up to a group of about 12 people and said, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And when they did receive the Spirit, wow. It's just the evidence of God's work 
amongst people. So the church, church of the living God, Sheffield. A community having an expectation. God's amongst us. God is at work. It's possible just to be cynical. It's possible for, for expectations to dip sometimes. That doesn't quite match now, does it? Almost. Close enough. Nearly. But what we see here is, is an, an impassioned man, Paul. Oh, Timothy, stay put in Ephesus. Well, why? The church is really hard work. It's not going so great anymore. Can't I just move on? No, there's something at stake here. This is to be the God's family and the church of the living God. That's what I'm laying my life down for, Paul might say. I'm encouraging you, Timothy, lay your life down for it as well. What else? What else do we see here? Thirdly, if the church is God's household, God's family, and also uh, the church of the living God, is dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told here the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. What would you think if I told you this morning that we were changing our name to Pillar of Truth Church? Oh goodness, sounds a bit heavy, sounds a bit serious. What would we make of that? Well, there's something here that should really excite us and really grip us that is unique to the church. Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus, in the flesh, turns up on planet Earth and says, I am the truth. Look at me, follow me, listen to me, build your life on what I say and what you see me doing. That's what Jesus could do. And that's not for us to do, is it, quite? And when, and when Paul was ministering, he didn't turn up into a new place and say, look at me. I am the truth. I mean, he, he could say, you can learn from my example, but he wasn't preaching, like he, he explicitly says that in 2 Corinthians 4. I'm not preaching myself. My ministry is not to set myself forward and say, observe and be amazed. He was saying, no, I've, I have renounced secret and shameful ways. I don't distort the word of God to deceive people. I'm not, as it were, deciding myself what's true. I don't get to do that. He says, by, but by setting forth the truth plainly, I com we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. What's Paul's ministry about? I want to set the truth forth plainly. We might think it's a slightly strange thing to say about the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Surely we'd say the truth is the pillar and foundation for the church. But what Paul is saying is that this is what the church is called to be. A public and obvious pillar, as it were, holding up the word of God. Saying this is true. This is the one truth. And there are lots of things that aren't true. Let me tell you about what is true. His name is Jesus. He is the true one. So in Ephesus, there'd be lots of, you know, there'd be a big temple, 100 columns, all holding up this massive structure and this massive roof that from miles around you could see and say, yeah, that's the temple of Diana. Wow. 
Let's go there and worship. You say, no, you ought to be like those big columns holding out the word of God, saying, come on, this is true. Come here, come and worship here. Come and experience satisfaction in life that can only be found here. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only way. He is the life. He is the truth. You won't find it anywhere else. Come, come to the truth, come. That's what he's saying the church is, is called to do. Pillar of the truth. You might think pillar of the truth sounds very serious. Maybe that means less singing. More time for seriousness. I think it means more singing. Look exactly at what Paul does immediately once he said that. The pillar and foundation of the truth. I love the way that as, uh, whenever Paul starts to get excited, he just starts to worship as he's writing. Or, wor- or he's probably dictating it and someone else is writing it down. But he's like, again, he's just caught up. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He starts to sing a song. Maybe a song that they all knew. What's the song about? It's all about you, Jesus. He appeared in the body. God, he humbled himself so low. He was vindicated by the Spirit because he was raised to life again. And he was seen by angels and the angels went, you did it! Wow! Saviour of the world! He's alive! He was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he the only one? Isn't it all about him? Don't our lives only make sense as we look to him? He's the one to fix our eyes on. He's the one to get excited by. He's the one that all this is about. He laid his life down. I'm laying my life down. I'm following him. I'm trusting him. I'm building my life on his word, and I'm excited about doing it. So pillar of the truth. Oh, we're just going to sing. It's going to bubble up from us. There's the match. There's the match. Can you see why the church is exciting? Can you see why there's something special here that you don't find anywhere else? You don't find that down the gym. You don't find that in any other community or grouping of people. You only see it as God reveals his glory through the church. Through a whole bunch of people, some of whom are rich and some of whom aren't. Some of whom are Jewish and some of whom are Gentile. all together, knitted together. Some people might think in these terms, well, you sometimes hold the microphone. That means that you belong more. That got me, probably means that God dwells more with you. Oh my goodness, could you just stop? We, the church, the church should be doing, could the church do, it's we, it's us, this is the dwelling place of God. This is the people of God. And there's something so wonderful. Paul is excited. Are you excited? Is something dulled your excitement? Have you settled for something less? It's not like a big kind of like firework display every week, is it? But do you see? Do you perceive the work of God? Do you see? Do you hear? God's at work. He's alive. I'm believing him. That tongue just sparked that interpretation. Wow. That prophecy speaks to my situation. You see the fingerprints of God on other people's lives. That's what I want to be a part of. Not just for the kind of some introspective holy huddle. No, God wants a really public church going, yeah, Jesus. He's amazing. So I'm going to suggest that we sing.
Amen.